Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to Bespoke Cast. We're really excited this week because we're going to be joined by another member of the Bespoke team in addition to an outside voice I'm excited for you guys to hear from. So to introduce who we're going to be talking to uh, this week, uh, first we've got Jill Carlson. Uh, You can follow her on Twitter at uh, at underscore Jill Ruth, or you can check out her website, jill-carlson.com. Jill is an independent crypto analyst and has a lot of knowledge around the, the wild world of crypto. Uh, we're really excited to hear what she has to say on the subject of the blockchain, on cryptocurrencies, on a bunch of different stuff. So Jill, welcome to BespokeCast. Great to be here. Thanks, George. And we also have Dan Ciatoli. Dan is uh, someone I work with at Bespoke very closely. He's a really talented uh, computer science grad, and he also has an interest in cryptocurrencies and in the world of blockchain, and we're excited to have him on as well. Dan, welcome to BespokeCast. Thank you. Glad I'm joining you today. So just before we get into our conversation here, I think it's helpful to point out that we're going to assume a sort of baseline level of knowledge around cryptocurrencies and around some of the technology involved here. If you don't have that baseline level of knowledge, not a problem. Bespoke has a really good background brief on how cryptocurrencies work, what they are, how the blockchain works, all that fun stuff. You can go to bespokepremium.com and search for blockchain brief, and that will show up right away for you. you can also do the same thing in Google. If you search bespoke uh, blockchain brief, it'll be the first result. It's a nice PDF background on what we're going to be talking about. So if you don't think you sort of have a baseline level of knowledge around crypto, really encourage you to read that before we get into uh, the discussion here. And that will also be linked in the show notes to this show. So with that out of the way, it would be great to get this conversation going. So I'll start with Jill. Jill, what is the concept of the blockchain good for? What are things it does really well? So yeah, it's interesting. If you ask 50 different people, what is a blockchain good for? I promise you, you will get 50 different answers. So I'll I'll propose my own. My answer for what blockchain technology is fundamentally good for is assets. Um, There's a lot of confusion out there around you know, okay, I want to create a distributed database for content management or, um, you know, for permissioning for certain purposes. But really what it comes down to is the issuance and the transacting of digital assets. So if we go back into kind of the history of how blockchain technology kind of came about, um, it really all began with, uh, paper that was published on a corner of the internet back in 2008, the Bitcoin white paper. And what the Bitcoin white paper did was it solved a problem that had been around in cryptography and math um, for a number of years, for decades, really. That problem comes down to one question, which is how can we transfer something digitally and prove that it only exists in one place at any given time. This is called the double spend problem. And blockchain technology, the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, first of all, solved this problem of uh, double spending. And that's why it's really all about the assets. Um, Because when I'm talking about content, when I'm talking about data, in general, firstly, I'm not really worried about double spending it. You know, if I send you a PDF document and that still exists on my computer, that's probably fine. You don't really have such an issue with that. You can get into questions of digital rights management that might become more interesting, but there you still have the problem of, you know, ultimately you can take a screenshot of that PDF document. You can take a picture of it on your iPhone and still be able to send it on. A blockchain, unfortunately, today is not going to be able to help you solve that problem. What it is going to help you solve is the proof that a unit of value of 
digital value only exists in one place at one time. And that can actually enable us to do all sorts of interesting things that we weren't able to do prior. So it can enable us to transact with each other peer to peer without relying on a third party intermediary. Um, it can enable us to actually program money in new ways um, and create all sorts of what come to be called smart contracts around them. So all sorts of interesting things around assets. Um, so just to just to expand on that a little bit, it, it sounds like what you're talking about is is real assets, as in stuff in the real world that has some sort of value outside of the closed loop of a blockchain sort of universe or a, a digital universe. In other words, it's helpful for something that exists in the real world that someone ascribes value to. It's less helpful for stuff that exists entirely in a digital space. In other words, money is something I can use to buy goods and or to uh, transact in goods and services. Um, I can't exchange a movie or a picture for goods and services. Um, trade uh, goods or, or trade finance is something that's tied to the real world, whereas Hulu isn't really. It's all abstract digital content. Is that a fair way to think about things in a, in a very basic way? Yeah, I think that there is a subtlety there, though, of the distinction I'm drawing is between content or data um, and, and assets which have value, uh, as opposed to sort of real world versus digital. You know, digital assets can have value without being linked to necessarily anything really in the real world. Um, you know, I think that Bitcoin is kind of the ultimate case of this where I, I'm of the opinion anyway that it is undeniable at this point that Bitcoin is unlikely to go away. It's unlikely to drop to zero cents on the dollar. Um, it does have value despite the fact that it is natively digital. It only exists in that medium. It doesn't get tied back to, you know, US dollars sitting in a bank account somewhere. Um, and so again, I would I would draw that distinction between not just sort of real world versus digital, but also content slash data versus assets that have value ascribed to them. Okay. Before we get too far far down that road, Dan, do you agree with that characterization? Is that sort of how you think about what blockchain does well versus what it doesn't do well? I think Jill, uh, I think she hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, I think that absolutely blockchain makes the most sense uh, when you're talking about assets. And uh, as kind of going into the real world versus um, digital discussion, um, I think blockchain excels um, in the digital world because when you then have something in the real world tied to a blockchain asset, you're inherently adding some kind of point of centralization or trust because someone has to exchange or redeem um, the blockchain asset or token for the real world good. And so then that's, I guess, kind of a, you, you could call it if you're like, a blockchain purist, you could call it like a point of failure. Just as I, if I could just put that in sort of plain English, I'm, I'm imagining, for instance, um, you know, a, a pool of oil, like not literally a pool, but a, a bunch of oil that's secured to some sort of blockchain asset. At some point, you still have to have somebody matching up the fact that there is oil somewhere and that the title of that relates to the digital blockchain abstraction. Is that sort of what you're... Exactly. That's exactly what I'm... Yep. So it's almost like blockchain works better for digital assets than otherwise. That's my take on it, um, just because I think, well, if you're going to have those centralized points anyway, why do you need a blockchain? If those are the people redeeming it, you could just use a regular database and those individual, um, I guess, those people who match the asset to the token would just be the ones keeping track of, of uh, things. You wouldn't need a blockchain for that. Yeah, I call this the the kind of on and off ramp problem of it, where if if you are matching it up to a dollar sitting in a bank account or a barrel of oil somewhere or a gold bar in a vault, you're always going to have to engage with that on and off ramp. And, you know, one really interesting insight, I think, that comes out of all of the interest in blockchain is that the world has a huge tracking problem. You know, there's this idea out there that, oh, if I can just put, you know, my gold bars or my diamonds or, um, you know, my pork belly is on a blockchain and then I can 
I can track the way that they move throughout the world and throughout the system. And that's, you know, that's just simply not the case unless you have a good way to solve that last mile problem that Dan is talking about here as well. Not to get too abstract, but this does sort of sound like Project Cybersyn, an experiment of the Allende government in Chile during the 1970s. They designed a whole economy tracking system where the idea was that a computer could keep track of everything and it'd be super efficient because as soon as a factory uh, ran low on steel, then, you know, they would be able to see this and order more steel and everything would smoothly run through the production process. But the reality was that it was really hard to get everything accurately entered into the system. You had points of failure and people on the ground in the different factories or in the different places, either not doing it correctly, having incentives to report things that weren't accurate, that sort of thing. Is that sort of similar with with blockchain assets? Yeah, I would say so. And look, I think that there are interesting uh, solutions to this in the pipeline. I, I generally hate to mix my cutting edge, bleeding edge technologies. But in this case, I actually think that IoT might be interesting uh, in in tackling these kinds of issues. There's a really interesting group called the Trusted IoT Alliance that's looking at exactly these sorts of problems. Okay, so we've sort of talked about what blockchain does well in the abstract. Can we talk about some examples of specific systems where there's there's a real um, you know, efficiency being developed by adding blockchain stuff that's going to work really well, or at least looks like it's going to work really well. Uh, Dan, have you seen any implementations that you look at and you think, okay, that's something where this is going to be great. This is going to work efficiently and we're going to like this for whatever reason. So when you say efficiencies, I think that's kind of like, um, it's hard to say like efficiencies where, right? Because there's kind of these other consequences of blockchain, uh, specifically ones that have to use proof of work where all of a sudden it requires massive amounts of energy just to run the blockchain um, at scale. So, or secure it rather. Um, but in terms of like maybe making things faster. Um, I like Ripple protocol. I don't really like XRP as what Ripple is kind of trying to sell it as. Um, but I like the idea of um, a distributed ledger. And I think that um, in terms of like accounting and having a system that everyone can use um, and trust, I think that's a big step forward um, in terms of like reducing um, overhead. Although, I mean, the truth is, I don't know a ton of about like bank to bank infrastructure. So maybe the current system's fine, but the way Ripple sells their uh, protocol is that it's something everyone can kind of hop on and keep track of their you know, US dollar uh, assets and liabilities and debts to various other parties um, and not have to worry about, I guess, all this other overhead that they make seem like shouldn't be an issue now that we have this technology. Okay, so interbank payments is is one example where there there could be some wood to chop. Jill, do you have an example of something that's spun up and starting to work well or looks like it has a lot of potential potential to work well? Yeah, so I would I would push back there a little bit. Um, you know, there's this notion out there that blockchain technology will make things more efficient, that it will reduce, for example, settlement time, um, that you know it can reduce overhead or back office costs potentially. I would argue that if you're trying to solve for efficiency, your best way to do that is to just use modern software and good database technology and you know find a really streamlined process of communication reconciliation that probably a blockchain is not going to be the right answer blockchains you know i mentioned earlier i think are really only good for one thing and that's assets but specifically within that they're really primarily good for cases where you're trying to solve for some kind of censorship censorship excuse me, censorship resistance or else disintermediation, cutting out sort of rent-seeking um, middlemen or third parties. Um, it's going to be less a case of, of solving for efficiencies. So then, Jill, to, to take that point to the logical um, conclusion, I guess, 
blockchain isn't actually that efficient. So the scope of stuff that it will do well, where it'll generate something superior to where we stand today, isn't actually that large. Is that a fair way to characterize what you just said and sort of by extending it a bit? Don't get me wrong. I think that the implications of it will be huge over time. Um, I think that, you know, I can definitely imagine a world in which these sort of decentralized systems reshape the way that we understand and interact with property at large. I can imagine a system in which, you know, all assets that, that we deal with, at least in digital format, be they securities, be they futures and derivatives, be they, um, you know, even, even centralized fiat currencies, I could imagine in certain forms, uh, will be really recast by this, this technology and this system. Um, but I think that for the time being, I, I would not mistake, uh, efficiency gains um, with something that, that blockchain technology can offer. And the reason for that, Dan touched on this earlier, we'll, we'll, we'll get your take on this, Jill, before we get back to Dan on it. But the, the reason for that is the fact that proof of work, which is the dominant sort of approach to securing the double spending problem, is something that requires an enormous amount of energy and enormous, both literally like, like, electricity and also you know deployed capital in the form of processing power um, to have any sort of security with um, proof of work you need to crunch a huge amount of data and to do that it's expensive and it's hard and it, that's why it works is that correct yeah so proof of work is an an example the primary example currently of a consensus mechanism and what we mean by consensus mechanism is the key tenant of this blockchain technology, the key way that it solves that double spend problem that I mentioned earlier, is it basically makes sure that every participant on the network is on the same page. Um, this in sort of technical terms is called state replication. So there's a certain state of the ledger of who owns what, who owes what to whom, um, transactions going across it. And that state needs to be replicated across every node, every entity, every server that's operating on a blockchain network. Um, now, there's this kind of confusion out there that this is distributed technology or distributed computation. In many ways, it's actually kind of the inverse of that. So distributed computation is when you have a math problem, say, and you distribute that math problem across a whole host of servers and use those kinds of economies of scale to solve that problem faster. An example would be Amazon's AWS, for instance. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But in this case, we're saying, okay, we have this math problem effectively or this state and we need to replicate that. We need every single server to solve it individually. Um, and so that's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding that I see out there. Okay. So Dan, in your view, the proof of work, uh, requirement for that, that is not the only to be clear, but the dominant, um, point of view within the cryptocurrency world right now is that it, it, it just, when you get to scale, it becomes incredibly, uh, expensive in processing power and electricity terms. Um, are there... Are there other ways that this can be solved that would scale better when you're talking about replacing systems like um, interbank payments or security settlement that do millions or billions of transactions? So just to start off talking about uh, the proof of work a little bit, um, I also think uh, Jill made an interesting point how it's really the inverse of a decentralized computation. Um, you're basically throwing away all of that. Um, the, the person who doesn't kind of win the race and solve that problem first, essentially all their energy was wasted. Um, and it's this weird necessity uh, because if you didn't have that, um, then the double spend problem would not be solved. But um, I do think that at least as of now, there's some hypothetical proof of stake implementations, but no one seems to have really done it successfully yet, at least as far as my knowledge. Could you could you talk a little bit about what proof of stake means? I haven't, I'm, 
like done a ton of research into it, but as far as I know, proof of stake is the idea that instead of, um, I guess, putting computational power towards a problem, you are proving that you own some of that asset and then you're kind of pushing it aside. Um, I'm not exactly sure the details, but it's- I'm, I'm happy to jump in there if that would sure. be helpful. So basically in proof of work, you are putting out, as I mentioned, math problem effectively um, to all of the servers, computers, nodes on this network. And you're saying, okay, whoever gets there first, whoever um, broadcasts first the existing state of the network accurately to all of the other nodes, all of the other computer servers, participants on the network, um, whoever gets there first gets elected as the quote unquote minor for that round. Um, and so there's this kind of election process that gets run uh, for who's going to be broadcasting, again, what the state of the ledger is, who owns what at any given moment. Now in proof of work, the way that election process is run is based on purely how much computation you're putting on the network. And so the example I like to give is if I'm using my MacBook Air to run this, and Dan is using his MacBook Air to run this computation, but George has a MacBook Pro, which has that much more compute power behind it, and the three of us are the only three nodes on the network, George is very likely to win a disproportionate amount relative to Dan and I just because he has more compute power. Now, in proof of stake, we replace this concept of compute with a concept of ownership of the tokens themselves. And so let's just use the example of Ethereum. That's the second largest cryptocurrency out there. Um, and I use that example because they're exploring moving to proof of stake. Rather than computational power, if we say that Jill owns five Ethereum tokens and Dan owns five and George owns 10, there again, George is more likely to be elected as the uh, quote unquote minor or the one who's broadcasting the state to the network. And I should also mention that whoever gets elected in this process also gets rewarded with more of the tokens. So there's this incentive system at play as well. Isn't that, isn't that a compounding problem though like like it, if you come in if so let's say uh we're the first three nodes in the network and i have 10 and you guys each have five and i have 10 so i'm more likely to win i get more tokens which means my market share quote unquote of the tokens goes up uh doesn't that mean that i gain gain voting power over time by the fact that i have voting power yeah it does and this is a huge problem with proof of stake that there are some interesting solutions to being kicked around, um, but certainly the uh, sort of accumulation, centralization of, of power over time and of financial uh, value over time um, is a huge problem with this system. Okay, we have basically established then that there may be solutions outside of proof of work, TBD, we're not sure yet. If you go with proof of work, you have enormous power and capital demands to keep the network running because there's so much wasted effort in replicating uh, to all the nodes the, the solved problem. Uh, that creates some really interesting like social implications, right? I mean, you know, in our in our blockchain brief, you can take a look at some of the energy calculations we do. But suffice to say that there is no way, given current global power production capacity, that you could run, let alone all you know global currency transactions, but the U.S. dollar alone or Visa's network alone, you could never run on a blockchain. There just isn't enough power. So where does that leave us? Doesn't that sort of create a cap at how useful blockchain technologies in aggregate can be? And Jill, I'll kick that one to you to start that off. So I think, I think yes and no, right? I think that firstly, um, you know, we always underestimate the amount of technological change that will happen over 10 years. And we always overestimate on the scale of one to five years, right? And so I am optimistic that with all of the funding and all of the incredible talent that has flown into this space over the last year alone, I'm optimistic that, you know, increasingly we'll get to scalable solutions. Um, that having been said, I stand by what I said earlier, which is that 
if you're primarily solving for scalability and efficiency, certainly today a blockchain is not your answer, but that doesn't mean that it's not good and interesting for a whole host of other problems out there. Dan, would you agree with that? I would, and I'd like to add, I don't think it's necessarily power that's the limiting factor, but the size of the blockchain itself. In other words, it's the competition for block space, um, which is why it will never really support a large amount of transactions and why second layer solutions uh, like Lightning Network uh, need to be developed. And those, of course, do sacrifice some of um, the advantages that blockchain comes with. It's no longer um, truly trustless. Um, there's kind of more like elements of a counterparty risk uh, when you get into stuff that is off-chain. So that this is a great jumping off point to talk about some of the mechanics of specific blockchain products and uh, cryptocurrencies. So Lightning is a really perfect example. Uh, Dan, can you give a quick overview of what Lightning is and what it's trying to do and how it does it? So Lightning Network is essentially, as I said, it's like a second layer solution um, that sits on top of blockchain or the, the Bitcoin blockchain or any um, coin that can kind of interface with it. Uh, I think Litecoin is also compatible. Um, and it essentially works by um, you have, I guess the, the base case is kind of you have, say, person A, person B, and person C, and they're each connected um, to each other by a channel. And you, so you initially have to fund that channel and that is done on the blockchain. So you do pay an initial fee. Um, but once everyone's set up on this network and there are all these channels and everyone's connected, you could send um, to anyone, like from anyone on the network to anyone else, as long as they're connected through these payment channels. Just, just uh, to, to put that in plain yeah. English, I'm thinking of popular payment app Venmo. To pay someone on Venmo is free and really fast and really easy, but you have to fund your Venmo account first to be able to do that. The difference being, of course, that in this case, I think everyone would have to fund initially as opposed to only one side of the transaction. Is that correct? That's that's correct. Okay. So just that's the plain English version. So so how what's the consequence of this of this approach? Like how what are the trade-offs? The trade-offs here are that so now once you, once you've got your fund set up, um, I can send to anyone and since it's not on a blockchain anymore, um, I would get basically way lower fees and it'd be way faster. And the technical details, I'm trying to think the best analogy. Um, if you want to think about it like this, it's like an agreement I have with you. We sign a transaction, agree that I owe you this much, and then you sign a transaction with Jill, say, like, say, if I wanted to give money to Jill, first, I would go to you if you were the in-between node connecting us. And I would say, hey, give this coin to Jill and then you would go to Jill and give that to her and we'd both agree that kind of not to broadcast this to the the actual blockchain but we all have copies of these transactions so if anyone decides to try and screw us over at any time we can broadcast our copy and say hey no this is actually what you know the real state of of our balances is and then you do incur the fee when you do that. But the blockchain kind of functions as like the court. Um, and we're just agreeing uh, to not basically broadcast it and incur that fee. So there is some level of trust, but you still have the fallback of the blockchain. Okay. So Jill, are there negative consequences other than introducing some method of trust there, some some degree of trust there? Or is it more just, you know, okay, now we've introduced trust and we're no longer dealing in a trustless space anymore? No, I, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, finding these interesting middle grounds where you can still ultimately, as Dan put it really well, I think leverage the blockchain as sort of the court. Um, the underlying blockchain is the court. 
but then be able to find some reasonable um, middle ground in order to solve for things like scalability, usability. You know, a lot of this technology today, as we've touched upon several times already, is not really practical to use. And I think that initiatives like Lightning uh, are going to be critical to bring it into sort of the mainstream going forward. Okay. Uh, Jill, is there another uh, crypto product that you think is sort of an interesting approach to a to a problem or that, that's gotten your attention recently? Yeah. One is um, that I would also put in that kind of middle ground category is a product called MobileCoin. Um, it's being developed by uh, some of the same team that created the messaging app Signal, um, which is an end-to-end encrypted messaging app, the protocol for which is actually used in WhatsApp to enable end-to-end. And there, you know, I think that we've seen kind of develop over the last couple of years this emphasis on, okay, how can we bring encryption solutions to the masses, how can we create good user experiences around them? Um, and that team has proven its ability to do so uh, with the Signal app and then also with this partnership with WhatsApp. Um, and I'm really excited about what they're bringing to the cryptocurrency space, which is really an emphasis, again, on user experience without having to fully compromise uh, the security aspect of it. What problem does MobileCoin solve, though? Is it, it it solves the problem of being able to pay someone without anyone knowing about it? Is that I mean, I mean I've never heard of MobileCoin, so in part, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a relatively new project, um, and so yeah, I'm happy to expound upon it a little bit here. But it is basically tackling the problem of custody largely. Um, so today you have basically two options when it comes to how you hold on to cryptocurrency. One option is to really use it for its intended purpose, which is uh, direct custody, not having to rely on a trusted third party um, to hold on to your assets on your behalf. If I wanted to do that, I could just go use my local bank, right? Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that if you're using many of the solutions out there, which don't get me wrong, are incredible and have done great things for the overall ecosystem. So I'm talking about things like Coinbase, other exchanges. Um, Really what you're doing is you're, again, entrusting your assets, though, to a third party. The alternative to this is uh, to basically buy a specialized piece of hardware that's never been connected to the internet um, and store your what's called a private key uh, or your way of accessing your crypto assets on that piece of hardware. Ideally, you probably want to lock that up in a safe deposit box. It's really hard to access. Um, a safe and, deposit box that is held at a bank? <laughs> at well, a third party? Well, yeah, go figure. What's <laughs> yep. sort of third parties? Ideally, you have kind of layers here, though, right? Where even if the bank can access that hardware, they don't necessarily you know, know how to boot it up and use it and know kind of all of the secret material that you'll need to access your assets. But as you can see, what I'm getting at here is it's just totally unreasonable for sort of the average person. Um, and what MobileCoin is doing is they are uh, trying to strike a really interesting, cool trade-off, um, which a lot of the sort of OG security folks who work in the space might say is problematic, but I think is is a good experiment on that middle ground between, again, user experience being reasonable and also being able to still use these crypto assets for their intended purpose, which is, you know, disintermediation. Okay. Um, Dan, is there anything else that any other sort of products or uh, cryptocurrencies or stuff that you that's caught your eye recently? Probably the most interesting cryptocurrency to me um, is Ethereum, and that's because of its uh, smart contracts, which I think are extremely fascinating. Um, You can run a decentralized organization, you can crowdfund, you can do all sorts of interesting things uh, with the smart contracts. Um, But I, I think we haven't really seen them put to good use yet just because the vast majority of the contracts now are like what is essentially a fraudulent token that is is worthless um 
in my opinion, I think the vast majority of Ethereum tokens um, that you see don't necessarily have a real like reason to exist. Just to just, uh, hold on for a second. So a, a token would be, can you walk us through the mechanics of like what a token is, how it gets issued, that sort of thing? Um, there's a standard called ERC-20, which is kind of like the go-to um, Ethereum token, which is essentially your, if Ethereum is like the base layer, the token exists on top and you can trade the tokens as if they're their own assets, which is really cool that you can create and trade your own asset on Ethereum. Um, and it's it has such a low barrier to entry too. Like anyone can create and trade these ERC-20 tokens um, if they own Ethereum. So, but as a consequence too, we've seen kind of like, I think it's also had kind of a negative um, impact because there's kind of rampant fraud in that space, um, which concerns me a little bit. But I think in the long run, um, smart contracts are going to be very interesting. When a smart contract gets executed, essentially it is making decisions based on a preset set of some preset algorithm, much like humans do, um, i.e., you know, if X, then Y, um, right? I mean, it, it's, it's yeah. you can abstract it, obviously. And everyone the, can see right, that. Every, everyone yeah. can see it. It's transparent. Everyone knows. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what happens when a contract's written incorrectly, a smart contract using the Ethereum blockchain? That is a good point, George. Um, so there's been numerous um, hacks because of the nuances of that go into kind of writing the smart contract code. And um, if you screw up, <laughs> basically, if you and, and it's easy, I'm not saying like, you know, that these people are stupid, because they're certainly not. Um, there's a lot of unexpected things that um, can just go wrong that you can't account for. And now that you have this decentralized platform, well, there's no one to go in and say, oh, let's, let's send their money back because it accidentally got hacked. Like now that you have assets in a decentralized platform, it amplifies the effect that, ha that of like being hacked because you can't go to anyone to get your money back. It's basically just gone. Um, but yeah, there's a whole host of bad things that can happen um, if smart contracts are written incorrectly and they can go undetected for months or years and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and find there was a bug in your code and your money has been drained. Turning back to Jill, do you see that um, fundamental problem with smart contracts, i.e. that they are infallible in a way that um, can create significant surprises. Um, do you see that as a, as a significant headwind for their execution? I just, you know, I, you know, from a philosophical perspective, you look at the sort of series of solutions that we've developed as a society over time to resolve disputes and to, um, you know, get everyone on the same page and they're messy and they're inefficient. Sometimes they're sometimes extremely inefficient depending on what country you're in. But at the end of the day, they, you know, they're, they're comprehensible and you sort of, you can sort of get your head around them. But with smart contracts, there are so many unintended consequences. Is that something that's going to create a big headwind for wider adoption of that solution to organizing um, society? Yeah. So I think that there's this really interesting tension that is ongoing in the development of this sort of technology, specifically smart contracts, where on the one hand, you know, ideal sort of technology development will happen in, you know, as Silicon Valley loves to say, a kind of move fast and break things environment where you can be testing and trying new things and iterating rapidly. Um, but on the other hand, there's uh, this problem that really what you're dealing with here is, you know, multi, multi billion dollar financial infrastructure at this point. Um, and as you said, you know, there's this concept of immutability in blockchain technology where 
I should say it's not completely impossible to sort of roll back the clock and, and undo things. Um, but it is extremely problematic and can be an existential threat to projects uh, when they have to engage in those sorts of measures. Um, and so it creates this sort of huge headache for anyone who's trying to develop these systems. You know, people love to use the analogy of you're changing the engine on the highway. Really, I would say you're changing, you know, the rocket engine on the way into outer space, though. Uh, and so that's definitely a tension that, that's playing itself out. You, do you view it as a tension that's fundamentally irresolvable? Or do you think, like, I guess my question is, like, like how do you convince people who are used to um, operating in a largely mutable world? You know, human interaction is a largely mutable thing. Yes. How do you convince people or maybe not even convince, but how do you incentivize people to move into a world where there's no mutability, where if they mess something up, it can mean the end of their livelihood or, you know, whatever, um, because of a misplaced parentheses? So I think that this is going to become one of the big topics over the next year or two in the space is how do you solve that coordination issue? Because fundamentally, it just comes back to a question of human coordination. How can we all ironically come to consensus on what should happen in the case of a bug or a hack? Um, what should happen even in the roadmap of development of some of these projects? How should they be improved over time? And you see some really interesting uh, solutions to this coming about. Um, three of the ones that I'll mention are Tezos, Definity, and Algorand, all of which have sort of these built-in voting me mechanisms um, that basically create kind of a, a constitution or a contract um, amongst the different participants on the network of how to resolve these sorts of disputes and be able to move forward. It's another example of trust being brought back into the equation. It sort of seems like you can either have pure trustless, pure immutability, or you can have a, a human interaction. Like, it, like there doesn't seem to be a middle, th there are middle grounds there, but you, you can't be a purist and have things work out in a way that would probably be attractive to most people. Is that is that a fair way to describe that? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that what we're touching on here is something that took me a really long time actually to fully appreciate, which is in all likelihood, this is probably why Satoshi Nakamoto, the author of the Bitcoin white paper, uh, the individual or group of individuals who first devised this kind of system, chose to remain anonymous or pseudonymous, um, chose not to come forward and put their names behind it. Um, because in order to create a truly decentralized system, you have to have these sort of organic decentralized power structures that arise around it um, as opposed to something imposed from the top down, or at least from what we've seen so far, I would argue that that's the best way of going about it. It, 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 it makes me think a lot about the various historical solutions that have been devised to the problem of how people are going to interact with each other. Everything from, you know, thinking about Roman history or thinking about the League of Nations versus the United Nations. I mean, these are these are very big sort of macro ways of thinking about the world, but it really does come down to a philosophical question, I think. And it's so interesting in this sort of buzz around um, around Bitcoin and around cryptocurrencies and the massive changes we've seen in the value of a lot of these things and the speculation that's going on that sort of the, the first principles, the underlying drivers of, of or the underlying philosophy here is is something that a lot of people haven't really dug that far into. Um, it makes it makes me wonder just just how sustainable it can all be. Um, if not that many people are thinking about whether the emperor is wearing clothes or not. Dan, would you sort of agree with that with that side of things or is that being too harsh? Um, I think that might be a little harsh. I think kind of one of the core tenets that you see with blockchain um, is that you're kind of empowering the individual. And with that power, there does come a certain level of responsibility. And whether that's like, you know, being responsible for securing your own assets or 
making sure your smart contract um, doesn't have bugs in it. Um, it just it does amplify a bit um, mistakes uh, because you don't have that kind of central power to lean back to if something goes wrong. But I think over time, um, we'll see more standards and things kind of become a little safer, um, especially with those smart contracts. But I think philosophically, um, it, it, it is interesting to think about um, because, you know, for the longest time, just how society operates is with, um, you know, government. That's a central power. Um, we look to a small group of people to um, create law and order, and then, you know, it goes down from there. But it it is interesting to think about um, just how um, how this is going to play out. But I think there's a lot of potential and the philosophical implications um, of blockchain and how we're going to interact um, are really interesting to think about. Okay, so taking things back down out of the clouds, I, I have a tendency to put my head in the clouds sometimes. I, I apologize to everyone for that. Um, Jill, I, one of the uh, subjects you want to talk about, I think, were um, Tether and stable coins and that whole universe. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and about some of the um, things that you're seeing going on in that space? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, I have to say thanks, George, because this is probably the longest running conversation I've had about crypto in months that has solely been oriented around the technology and not prices. So that's been very refreshing. But I think we would be remiss uh, to not touch upon some of the market dynamics at play here. Um, and specifically, what I wanted to highlight was just kind of the level of irrationality going on in the market. And I don't just mean sort of irrational exuberance or whether or not we're in a bubble. Um, look, I personally, for myself, am you know, very bullish these assets. Uh, that's not investment advice. Everyone needs to do their own research. Um, but what I'm talking about is sort of objective irrationality, where you have these dynamics that you would just never see play out in functional markets. And I think that the best example of this is a crypto asset that goes by the name of Tether. And so the idea here is that Tether is backed one-to-one -one by a U.S. dollar uh, that sits in a bank account somewhere. Um, no one is exactly sure where. It seems like it's likely in mainland China somewhere, um, if in fact there is such a bank account and if in fact there are these dollars. The incredible thing about Tether to me is that, okay, fine, it claims to be a cryptocurrency backed one-to-one -one by dollars. These dollars are not redeemable from the bank, from the issuing entity. Um, there has been no audit done, at least recently, uh, that demonstrates the existence of these dollars. And there is no real transparency or accountability going on um, towards the sort of governing body around this crypto asset, this cryptocurrency. Nonetheless, Tether has spent a non-trivial amount of time over the last few weeks trading actually above par at about 1.05. Um, so just just to, again, yeah, sorry to put please. this in English. So Tether, the idea behind Tether is there's a bunch of dollars sitting in a bank account somewhere. And if you own Tether, you have a claim on those dollars. So those, you know, it should work out where a unit of Tether is worth roughly $1.00. And that's the concept. The problem with this concept is that you can't actually get those dollars and nobody's sure they're actually there. And yet they're trading for a dollar and five cents per unit. So or have it at various times. In other words, they're trading for more than a dollar, even though there's a risk there that should suggest that they should trade below a par value, even even if they're, you know, if, if things were functioning correctly, they should either trade at par or well below par to account for the risk around whether the dollars are there or not, the fact you can't access them, so on and so forth. Is that, that that's right? Exactly. And, you know, even if there was sort of a perfect audit trail going on, even if there was transparency and good accountability, I would argue as someone, you know, who has something of a background in credit, that they should still be tr trading below par nonetheless, because there's always some counterparty risk incurred there, let alone the situation that we're talking about where there are none of those sort of best practices going on. Dan, uh, are there 
any implementations of the concept of a stable coin that you've seen that make sense or is it all just similar to tether and not something that 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 is really rational kind of circling back to earlier like it all comes back to that on off ramp problem so like you can say a tether is worth one dollar and you can say that yeah we'll redeem your tethers and i don't even know if i i think they actually on their website explicitly state that it's not redeemable um for a dollar and that they have no legal obligation to do so and yet um i don't know maybe they're making the market for it maybe they're buying all tethers for at least a dollar but they're certainly not legally obligated to um so it's kind of really questionable but yeah i don't really think that there is any blockchain solution that could really tie an external physical world asset to um, a real to a, a token um, without transparent and good legal grounding behind it. And Tether definitely does not have that. And it's funny too because you know I, I obviously think about things from a macroeconomic perspective. I'm a bespoke macro strategist. I spend a lot of time thinking about central banks and currencies and that sort of stuff. Maintaining currency pegs when you have an entire economy and the laws and government that that um, you know that that govern that that economy. Maintaining a currency peg in that situation where you've got a lot invested in it, where you've got teams of people whose job it is to sort of keep things in line that is still really hard there are some really successful currency pegs hong kong for instance is a is a really successful currency peg um but it's still really hard to do and there are tons of examples of currency pegs breaking and you know just creating all kinds of messes so the idea that you could do that with something and it would be easier just because it's crypto kind of you know I, I look at that and just go wait a second that's there's no way it's that easy uh jill do you is that sort of how you would think about the concept of stable coins in general that it's a sort of a, a backdoor to a currency peg that's got even less behind it than a typical currency peg in short yes that it that is exactly how i would look at it and, you know, I understand that there is certainly demand out there in the market for a stable coin um, for a few reasons. One is to be able to move assets from exchange to exchange um, without having to, you know, go through Bitcoin or some of the slower, more expensive uh, assets to move. Um, there is also a desire to be able to move from crypto assets to something that is not going to have so much volatility. Um, so there are real sort of use cases, but just because you want something to exist doesn't mean that it can. So it sort of seems then that if you're going to be in a crypto asset, whatever the attributes of that asset, whether they're positive, negative, whatever, you have to accept that there will be some measure and in some, in most almost actually virtually all cases, um, a large measure of volatility vis-a-vis the units of account we use in the real world, whether it's US dollars, euros, yen, one, whatever. Um, there is no way to say, okay, you know, we're going to create something that has all the good attributes of the US dollar, i.e. stability, ease of use, whatever, and none of the bad attributes of Bitcoin, for instance, which is you know, it's gone up a lot in price and it's got some cool attributes to it, but it's very volatile. Like at the end of the day, it's volatile and nobody likes volatility. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too, in other words. Is that a fair way to think about it, Jill? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I, if I think about how markets in general combat volatility, it's either through monetary policy or it's just through market maturity. It's through the ability of different actors to access the market for there to be sufficient liquidity for them to express opposing views and for them to actually use the asset for, um, you know, exchange of real, real world goods. And I think that the latter of those will be where you start to see some volatility diminished in some of these crypto assets. But I think that trying to impose it um, through some sort of peg or some some sort of collateralization is a very dangerous play. It is really funny, too. I, I can recall a, a, a Reddit comment thread from one of the Bitcoin pullbacks last fall, I think it was, where somebody's, you know, imagining, you know, holding on to his Bitcoin for another 20 or 30 years or something like that. And how, you know, it always goes up in price and he's now got like this great 
you know, condo in New York and something, something, something. And, you know, the, the, he's talking about how in this imagined future where everyone uses Bitcoin for everything, there's still a price to Bitcoin. Like, like, you know, the price of Bitcoin drops in this imaginary future he's talking about. And he's like, oh, oh, well, I'll buy some more. And it's just so funny to me because he's still talking about it in terms of the unit of account that we use in our day to day life, i.e. Bitcoin is being talked about not as a currency that underpins economic activity, but is being talked about in terms of the actual underpinning, which is in this case, the U.S. dollar. Um, that sort of disconnect to me is just it, it really sort of encapsulates some of the more um, concerning speculative aspects around the currency at the same time as encapsulating some of the economic reality which is when people want to go down and go to tgi fridays for dinner they're going to pay in us dollars and until that changes in a big way it's hard to see how crypto is worth half a trillion dollars in, in aggregate market cap or whatever the number is it's like you know it's not to say that it's all worthless and not interesting and you know nothing will ever come of it it's more like well sure something may come of it but at what like what price are you buying that that thing that may come is that sort of fair you know and, and again that's i'm i'm a much bigger skeptic about crypto than i think either of you two are so you know I, to be entirely fair i could be dead wrong on that but sort of as somebody that's more you know grounded in in the in an economic viewpoint as opposed to a technical one that's sort of how i think about it and i, I have a hard time getting past that that sort of fundamental stumbling block i'll let dan take that first then happy to sure speak. george i think you're absolutely right and i think if um, you know, those other solutions that are trying to enable Bitcoin commerce fail. Um, I think that it's very possible Bitcoin could lose value or cryptos in general could lose value because um, I think there is a lot of speculation that we, we could actually transact in it, have economic activity denominated in Bitcoin or other cryptos. Um, so yeah, but I guess from what I've seen um, and from reading the Lightning Network white paper, I'm really, um, I, I have a positive view on what this year holds and what could come of Bitcoin and um, how, how things might play out. I think it's very possible we could see real economic activity denominated in Bitcoin. Yeah, so I agree with you. No one is going to be going down to TGI Fridays anytime soon paying for their meal with Bitcoin. You know, it's kind of a cute gimmick that crops up every once in a while of, oh, this bar accepts Bitcoin. You can buy a beer with it. Um, but that's not really the point. The point of Bitcoin is to be a censorship resistant store of value. So, again, it's not about efficiency. It's not about security settlement time. And it's definitely not about my ability to go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee with it. What it is about is in places like Venezuela that are experiencing rampant hyperinflation, uh, where the government has basically defaulted on the people before even defaulting on their own sovereign debt uh, that they owe to outside investors in the US, China, and Russia. Bitcoin there provides an opportunity to gain access to a store of value and even at times a means of transaction that is truly decentralized, that is not in the hands of the problematic policymakers, um, the problematic government officials who are, again, basically defaulting on the people um, of, their, of their countries. And I think that it's important to take a step back amidst all of the hype that goes on in this market, take a step back from, you know, regardless of what the prices are doing, of, you know, how many frauds are out there uh, trying to issue sort of fake tokens and, and really remember the power that this new asset class, this new technology does have in places that, that face those kinds of problems that are a very, very long ways from uh, the TGI Fridays that I might go to on Friday night. That seems like a good jumping off point uh, for us to wrap things up here. Um, uh, at the end of every episode, we like to do a trading rich, trading cheap um, segment where we talk about um, 
ideas or concepts or um, you know stuff that is you know trading rich is is overvalued is is overrated is is too high or trading cheap it's uh, underrated undervalued uh, too low um, so uh, I'll start uh, with uh, Dan um, Dan is ethereum as a cryptocurrency trading rich or trading cheap and you don't have to answer that in price terms if you don't want to if it's easiest to do it in price terms fine but um do you think that there's too much hype around it not enough hype around it just the right amount how, how do you think about ethereum trading rich or trading cheap um that is that is a hard question for me to answer um it might be trading on par uh, um i i think there's simultaneously a lot of potential behind smart contracts, and I think there's simultaneously a lot of uh, misuse and kind of fraud in the space. Um, I'd say, on the whole, cryptos are probably trading rich, so maybe I'd say Ethereum is um, trading rich. Jill, uh, we've talked at a high level about how cryptocurrency, this sort of philosophy of cryptocurrencies, the philosophy of the world that they sort of embody and how a lot of that has to do with sort of differing opinions around trust. Do you think in aggregate in society today that trust, um, trust of your neighbor, trust of your uh, fellow American or we're all Americans in this conversation, obviously, um, your fellow American in another state, um, your elected representatives, whoever, do you think trust is trading rich or trading cheap? That's a great question. I think trust is trading cheap. I think that there's this notion that, you know, we are entering a time period that is uniquely bad or problematic when it comes to trust of, as you say, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's media outlets, whether it's politicians in power. And I think if you look back through history, we always will have a bias to think that our time is unique and special. Um, and in reality, it's just the same trends that humanity has been experiencing all along. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that I am necessarily a fan of a lot of what's going on in the world today or in politics, but I do think that uh, the degree to which that we do still all trust each other and necessarily have to, and the degree to which that's okay, uh, is trading cheap. That's an optimistic tape. I, I tend to agree with that. I, 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 that definitely appeals to my priors. So, um, I'm, I think I'm with you there, but it's definitely the optimist take in, in this day and age, I think. Um, Dan, uh, there have been a lot of stories around the cost of higher end, um, uh, graphics cards, processors, that sort of basic um, equipment getting bid up massively on the secondary market, being bought for a few hundred dollars, you know, a, a year ago and now trading for nearly a thousand or whatever on eBay. <clears throat> do you think that that trend is going to continue or do you think that um, the sort of crypto markets have gobbled down as much as they can take and that, and that um, you know, there's going to be a supply response from various companies that supply these markets and 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 things will get back to normal for that sort of equipment. So first, my sympathy goes out to all the gamers who have been unable to purchase graphics cards because <laughs> of the whole crypto thing. Um, but I think that eventually you're going to start to see like delineated delineations between like, okay, this is going to be hardware for crypto and this is going to be gaming hardware. Um, and I think we're already starting to approach that. I mean, Bitcoin has, um, no one uses graphics cards to mine Bitcoin anymore. It's all these specialized machines called ASICs. Um, long story short, different proof of work algorithms have different resistance to developing those machines for them. But I think eventually you're going to see some degree of specialization, if anything, just so that the crypto people can get the best hardware out there and those poor gamers can finally get high-end graphics cards again. Alrighty. Uh, last one, um, Jill, we'll leave it with you. Um, do you think that 
use of blockchain as a buzzword is trading rich or trading cheap. Do you think we're going to see more of that or have we started to see that peak out? Um, I, just as an example, uh, during uh, the, I think it was the AFC championship game last weekend, there was an ad for uh, IBM talking about putting tomatoes on the blockchain. We've seen I saw a, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a rash of just buzzwordy uh, company name changes that result in the stock going up 100% and crazy stuff like that. Do you think that that behavior is going to keep going or get worse? Or do you think we're sort of getting past that? So I'm of two minds on this. I think that in the sort of hype sphere, the word blockchain is absolutely trading rich. Um, you know, the rebranding of Long Island Ice Tea Company to Long Blockchain is one of the more embarrassing things that I've seen in the last six months. And that's saying something. Um, I think, though, when it comes to talking about actual blockchain technology, I think that we're trading very cheap. Um, so I would differentiate, you know, discussion of blockchain as in the underlying tech. Uh, versus discussion of crypto, cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. And I cannot wait until we start to see more of the former, you know, discussion about the technology, what it's actually good for, how it can deliver on some of these promises over just price action again. Cool. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Jill Carlson, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciated having you on. Once again, you can follow Jill on Twitter. I recommend you do. She's at underscore Jill Ruth at underscore J-I-L-L-R-U-T-H. And you can also find her at jill-carlson.com. And Dan Ciotoli, uh, who uh, covers crypto for us here at Bespoke, he's, um, if, you, if you'd like to follow Bespoke's uh, crypto coverage, you can do so at Bespoke Crypto. Thanks for joining us, guys. It was great talking to you. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Great being here, George. for joining us this week on the bespoke cast once again i'm bespoke investment group's macro strategist george perks if you enjoy bespoke cast please consider reviewing the podcast in the itunes store or on your favorite podcast platform reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes if you'd like to learn more about our firm please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on twitter at bespoke invest our research includes reports analysis commentary and data sets sent out daily Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.